Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. Welcome, first episode of October. This week's episode title comes from a song titled by Against Me. Laura Jane Grace, the founder, lead singer, songwriter, and guitarist in the band, just released her first solo album. The link to the Bandcamp page is in the show notes if you're curious. And Laura also released her biography, Tranny, Confessions of Punk Rock's Most Infamous Anarchist Sellout, in 2016. It is both a behind-the-scenes look at the rise of a successful punk band and Laura's journey in search of uh, identity. Uh, She notably came out as transgender in a Rolling Stone interview, and this book focuses on her lifelong trans trans life. Almost to my reading goal of 365 books, so we'll see if I adjust that soon. I'm four away, and we'll probably hit that before the end of the month. In case you missed uh, the episode launch on September 28th, Forest of Noise began. It is a short about short creative works, and it will appear in the off weeks. So this week is Book Club of One, and next week will be Forest of Noise, and we'll continue alternating between those two uh, for as long as I can come up with content for both shows. And I was able to catch up some on the featured reading soon books. So both books from episode 12, Ghostland and Little Kingdoms, were read during the past two-week period, but they didn't make this week's episode. Uh, Ghostland had a great introduction and then failed to live up to that introduction throughout the rest of the book. It was one of those that we often come across a book that would have made a great article or an article that could have been a footnote. Uh, In my opinion, Ghostland was a book that could have been a great article. Little Kingdoms was three novellas, uh, and I found only one of the three to be interesting. The other two just felt long. And I've also started reading The Foundation Pit, a book that was featured in episode 11 as reading soon, and I swear during this two-week period I will finally get around to reading One Person No Vote before November, because I feel like that is one to definitely read ahead of this election especially with as contentious as it might likely be. I have received my mail-in ballot. Uh, I'm still debating whether to follow through with the mail-in ballot or try to go in person. While we're talking about October, uh, it also means that we're going to do some featured books about spooky themes, either ghost stories, horror stories, or related. But first, we'll continue this show with our usual beginning where we talk about Black Lives Matter books or social justice readings. Uh, And today, our book pick will be Guantanamo Voices, True Accounts from the World's Most Infamous Prison. Uh, Sarah Merck is the editor who is a social justice-focused graphic journalist, editor, and teacher. She is also a zine maker and illustrator whose comics have been featured in The Nib, The New Yorker, Bitch, and NPR. Omar El-Akkad wrote the introduction, and he is an Egyptian-Canadian novelist and journalist. His first novel was American War, which came out in 2017, 
and was featured on BBC News's 100 Most Influential Novels in 2019. Each uh, of section of this book was by a different artist, and I'm just going to name them here without providing their biographies, but you can look those up if, on your own if you're interested, or if curious, I, if enough demand, I can look up for those as well. So the artists involved in this book are Nomi Kane, Hazel Nulivant, Gerardo Alba, Alexandra Biquas, Omar Kori, Maki Naro, Jeremy Nguyen, Tracy Shawan, Kane Lynch, Keisha Babis, and Chelsea Saunders. The cover is by Maria Nguyen, and the color palette was developed by Casimir Lee. The book also reprints original drawings by Guantanamo prisoner Abu Zubaydah. So I came across this book as a newly added ebook available through the local library system. And it is about how in January 2002, the United States sent a group of Muslim men they suspected of terrorism to a prison in Guantanamo Bay. They were the first of roughly 780 prisoners who would be held there, and 40 in inmates still remain. 18 years later, very few of them have ever been charged with the crime. This anthology collection tells the story of 10 people whose lives have been impacted or shaped by Guantanamo Bay including former prisoners, lawyers, social workers, and service members. So as is typical with the Black Lives Matter and the social just readings, it's an uncomfortable read, but it is a necessary one to be uncomfortable and to learn from history. So this book, again, covers people who have worked or tried to assist the prisoners as well as some of the prisoners themselves, and it gives a full history of Guantanamo Bay as it was set up as a, a, a not prison, but prison camp. Uh, and it discusses the legal wrangling the Bush administration did to have these people classified as internees, so they did not have the same rights as we would see with prisoners. And some of the prisoners themselves talk about their experiences of how they wound up there, and most of them did not seem to be affiliated with Al-Qaeda. They might have wound up there through the pettiness of neighbors or just being reported as uh, a problem or against a certain area. Like one of the prisoners was just found with an AK-47 in front of a tank, and he was in, eventually imprisoned here. Of course, they were tortured, which we, we have notably seen throughout the news of them being waterboarded. And in general, they were very isolated in these camps and spent years separated from families. And it also talks about for them to be released they could not go back to where they had come from. They had A country had to be willing to host them. So here they are, people stripped away from their families, often with little to no warning, secretly sent to Guantanamo Bay, and then their names for a long time were not released until someone leaked them. Where, so the family members would have no idea where they are or what happened to them. And when a contact is eventually established, it would be through letter form because it would not be easy to visit these places, the Guantanamo Bay. And then they would just be there trying to figure out how they could be released, if they could be released. And it goes through all the legal wrangling from the lawyers trying to get release 
for these internees and the internees trying to regain contact with their families and loved ones. Book two is a first for this show. It's a book I have not quite finished, but I'm almost there. If all goes well, maybe I'll be finishing it tonight. Uh, it was picked because the other one I originally selected for this show I wasn't feeling as strongly about, and instead thought I'd talk about this one. So book two is Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China by Zheng Shang, who is a Chinese-born British writer now living in London, and she is best known for her family autobiography, Wild Swan, so this book. A friend had given it to me many years ago, and I have finally gotten around to reading it. Uh, my, my wife read it several years ago, so if she remembers enough of it, we can talk about it. So Wild Swans is the story of three generations of women in Chang's own family. The grandmother given to the warlord as a concubine, the communist mother, and the daughter herself. Through the family, Chang reveals the epic history of China's 20th century. And it is quite the tumultuous history. So to just give you a quick outline, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, the Chinese monarchy breaks down, uh, leading to some control of the capital and areas around it. Uh, but a lot of the country breaks into civil warfare with warlords gaining control over different sections. They were then unified under the nationalists, sort of. There were still some areas under warlord control, and the communist movement within China begins to grow and become a, a, another side that challenges the nationalists. So they are, are in a civil war until the Japanese invade in the 1930s, and then the nationalists and communists unify for the duration of the war. After the Japanese are defeated, the nationalists and communists again go back to civil war and the nationalists are eventually defeated and forced off the mainland where they still reside in Taiwan. Uh, and then the communists take power uh, as led by Chairman Mao. So throughout this book, it is a continual story of struggling to maintain a family in the face of a society struggling to maintain itself. So there's the famines during the wartime, the brokering for a place within the hierarchies that would not lead to, to death. So you have some family members joining the nationalists because the nationalists are in control of the area, but then the communists come through and they're penalized. And then when the communists eventually take over, those earlier attempts to survive by joining the nationalists are exacerbate the conditions in the present because as the communists are in power they try and eradicate the nationalist influence as they say so chung's mother and father were both very active within the communist uh, fighting force and government after the wars had ended and so they are very busy in those lives and not always necessarily around or able to to be with the children as in the 1950s the it was thought necessary for the communists to put all their time and energy into work and then maybe have one day a month at home to the point where married couples might not even live together 
because they had to live in wherever their workplace was. And then, of course, there's the Great Leap Forward, which was when Mao encouraged everyone to switch to industrial-focused work. So you had backyard steel furnaces that, of course, were not able to produce the quality of steel necessary for manufacturing. But the result of it was a massive famine because everyone was so focused on the iron production that they didn't necessarily have the time or ability to grow and harvest crops. And so during during the work, Chang, Chang talks about her, her growing up within the system and how she was indoctrinated to think of Chairman Wow as wise and always doing what was best. But as she is uh, during the Cultural Revolution, when, again, the communist Chairman Mao shifted from having the Communist Party was ruling to his personal system that encouraged students and everyone else to rebel against the former communist officials. But during that time, uh, students were sent out away from the cities to work as peasants and get an, get an idea of what that was like. It was a very in anti-intellectual movement. But during it, Chung begins to realize what happened with the Great Leap Forward. And again, what because she was indoctrinized, she doesn't necessarily fault Mao, Chairman Mao for it, but she does begin to question what she's told in a very controlled society. Book three is Kent State, Four Dead in Ohio. John Backdurf, who writes under the name Durf Backdurf, is an American writer, artist, and cartoonist best known for his book, My Friend Dahmer, about attending the same high school and being around the serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. Backdurf's newspaper work has been recognized with over 50 awards, including the 2006 recognition of the John F. Kennedy Journalism Award and his 2015 book, Trashed, was awarded an Eisner Award. This book has been on my reading list since for, before it was released, uh, as I read my friend Dahmer and trashed and looked forward to other titles. My local library system had it available as an ebook. On May 4, 1970, the Ohio National Guard gunned down unarmed college students protesting the Vietnam War at Kent State University and a deadly barrage of 67 shots, four students were killed and nine shot and wounded. In this book, Backdurf conducted extensive interviews and research to explore the lives of the four young people in the first few days of May 1970. So a work of graphic journalism, as, as we've seen in other titles like Joe Sacco's work. So here Backdurf again takes us from the beginning of May with his own personal experience as a 10-year-old, seeing the Ohio National Guard used to block a trucking company or protect a trucking company who was dealing with some striking workers to the eventual event on campus. So like with any historical event, uh, I was familiar with the shootings to have occurred, but didn't really know a whole lot about it beyond that there were protesters and they were killed by the National Guard. And this will takes us through the days leading up to it and the fear the administration had, because there was a officer training program on Kent State. And in the days prior to the protest that led to deaths, 
the off uh, the the training building was firebombed and destroyed, and so tensions were already very high on campus, and there had been some rioting and damages in the downtown area with lots of broken windows, to which the police had responded. But the the four individuals who were killed, we get to learn what their day-to-day movements were and when the firings took i mean the shooting took place it was during a class change so there were some protesters there to protest the vietnam war but then as the national guard advanced on them they uh, a sub small unit of the national guard went further into campus than the others and were aiming their weapons towards students who were not part of the protest. So again, in in our current turbulent times, it is a militarized response to uh, people expressing their constitutional right to protest. The protest on the campus was not violent. Uh, The only person I remember from the way Bacter portrays it is throwing rocks at a another student on campus who was photographing the protesters. Book four is Angel. Elizabeth Taylor was an English novelist and short story writer. In 1971, her novel Mr. Palfrey at the Claremont was nominated for the Man Booker Prize. She wrote 11 other novels, a children's book, and more than 60 short stories, some of them published in Vogue, The New Yorker, and Harper's Bazaar. I came across this title in my local library's catalog uh, when I was searching to see what books they had published by New York Review Books. Angel is about the life story of Angelica, Angel, Deverell, from her adolescence and first attempts at writing through the course of her career as a successful writer of sensational romances into her decline, old age, and death. Although she finds fame and wealth and marries the love of her life, Angel is condemned to a life of isolation and disappointment. Critics regard her work as absurd and her closest relationships with her publisher, her husband, and her sister-in-law are doomed by the inability of others to conform to her unrealistic view of life. So this would probably could be considered a dark comedy. Because we again, we see Angel from her, her teenage years where it starts off with her as a schoolgirl making up stories about her life uh, or her, her life on a grand house in the country until she is, her, the students she's been telling the story to tell their mother and of course it gets back to her mother and it's a lie uh, and she is punished or at least deeply, well, she was meant to be punished, but her mother gave in. But, but throughout the work, uh, her, her own viewpoint is often used to a satirical edge. So for example, when she is offered a position as a, a lady's maid following her giving up on school, she turns it down in such a biting manner that her aunt who works at that house from then on refuses to even speak to her. Or when she does become the successful writer working through her publisher, the one publisher never meets with her because he cannot 
keep a straight face throughout it. And many, while the readers love her, the critics are quite vicious as she makes many mistakes in her books. But the readers are, are swept past them as they stay hooked to the narrative. Whereas those reading a little more critically might notice that you do not need a corkscrew to open up a champagne bottle and other small errors like that. It's a pretty brief book and it speaks to, I suppose, the challenges of creativity because it, that is, of course, the main character's career of continuing to churn out material from before World War I into the 30s. So we see her as a popular author who does very well in the pre-war years. And then her popularity wanes, but her expenses, of course, don't. So we see the, the battle there between artistic expression and the need to maintain a lifestyle. And our last book of the week is The Green Man by Sir Kingsley Amos, who was an English author, poet, critic, and teacher. He wrote more than 20 novels, six volumes of poetry, a memoir, short stories, radio and television scripts, and works of social and literary criticism. He is best known for his comic writing, like in his best-known book, Lucky Jim. He was also a serial adulterer and was known to express, but also dislike and oppose, anti-Semitism. This book was given to me by a family member who was doing some clearing out of books. The Green Man is centered on the coaching in The Green Man, said to boast a residential ghost, Dr. Thomas Underhill, a notorious 17th century practitioner of black arts and sexual deviancy, rumored to have killed his wife. However, the landlord, Maurice Ellington, is the sole witness to the renaissance of the malevolent Underhill. Led by an anxious desire to vindicate his sanity, Allington strives to uncover the key to Underhill's satanic powers. All the while, the skeletons in the cupboard of Allington's own domestic affairs rattle to get out too. And in this book, we see something of the author writing, possibly from their own personal experience, as Allington is having an affair. But it also talks about the difficulty of maintaining and keeping the inn a going business. Allington seems very overworked and stressed, and he drinks, self-medicates through alcohol. So throughout the book, he drinks a copious amount to the point where sometimes he does sees damage on his car. He's not sure where it's from. So like a good story, it begins with us learning the setting because uh, we see Allington going through a typical weekend evening when the inn is most busy with him serving as a waiter, going around, talking to the different uh, attendees of the restaurant half, some of which want to talk about Underhill and his uh, attributed haunting and what he did to potentially haunt the place. It does also fall into the strengths of some horror or psychological horror in that as Allington learns more, becomes a little more anxious and concerned about what's going on, he seeks to learn as much as he can about Underhill, both from the books available within the inn, uh, as well as he does go to a university and explore their collections. So while I'm not too fond of him being left alone with rare books, I am. I do like that he did go to the efforts of doing archival research. So if uh, knowing 
him as a serial adulterer does not put you off too much. I'd certainly say give this a try if you're looking for some darkly comedic supernatural horror for the month of October. Then before we head out to our outro, uh, I do want to talk about some books either being read soon or in progress. So the first of those is The Morse Tale by Leila Lalami. Uh, it is in 1527, the conquistador Panfilo de Narvaez sailed from the port of San Lucar de Baramida with a crew of 600 men and nearly 100 horses. His goal was to cl claim what is now the Gulf Coast of the United States for the Spanish crown, and in the process become as wealthy and famous as Hernán Cortés. But from the moment the Narvaez expedition landed in Florida and faced peril, navigational errors, disease, starvation, as well as res resistance from indigenous tribes. Within a year, there were only four survivors. The expedition's treasurer, Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, a Spanish nobleman named Alonso del Castillo Maldonada, a young explorer named André Durante de Carranza, and Durante's Moroccan slave, Mustafa al-Zamori, whom the three Spaniards called Estebanico. These four survivors would go on to make a journey across America that would transform them from proud conquistadors to humble servants, from fearful outcasts to faith healers. And the other one I'm, I've already started is the Penguin Book of Ghost Stories, reading the 1984 edition. And it is an anthology of 33 stories representing the last 180 years of ghost stories. Some are classics by famous writers, and others are little known. Besides the frightening and blood-curling, there are also the witty and subtle, plus those that leave a feeling of unease and fear. So I'm partway through the second one, uh, and it works chronologically, so as it continues to go forward, I'm hoping they become a little easier to read. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations, or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.